Welcome to 4D. Deep dive into degenerative diseases. Gaining insights through casual and amusing clinical conversations. Welcome to 4D, a podcast brought to you by the ANPT Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group. I'm Chris Burke, a physical therapist, and I serve as the chair-elect of the DDSIG. I'm excited to be here today with Ryan Duncan and Merrill Landers to talk about fear avoidance behaviors in individuals with Parkinson's disease. So first off, welcome, Ryan and Merrill. Thanks for joining us. Before we get started, I, we usually like to ask you to tell us a little bit about your professional background and what you do. So Ryan, why don't we start with you? Sure. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, I'm Associate Professor of Physical Therapy and Neurology at Washington University in St. Louis. Uh, most of my time is spent doing clinical research, which is focused on, right now, better understanding musculoskeletal pain in people with Parkinson's disease. I also have some uh, effort devoted to education in our DPT program. So in that role, I teach primarily things related to professional issues, but I also have some time related to sort of the neurologic examination and treatment and PT. So yeah, that's me. Thanks. And Merrill? Yeah, good to be here today. Um, I am a professor at University of Nevada, Las Vegas. I'm also the department chair of the program and have been for the last 12 years. I have been in academia and at UNLV for 22 years, and uh, most of the time I've been working in the Parkinson's population for research and have other interests in, in a few other areas, but my primary area of interest is in Parkinson's disease, uh, primarily as on the topic that we're going to talk about today, avoidance behavior, but also in exercise neuroprotection and, and you know, some biological um, reasons for exercise neuroprotection and Parkinson's disease. So. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here today. Okay, great. Um, so honestly, my first question is, how did the two of you come to- together to collaborate? Is it a funny story? or uh, I roped Merrill into this, for sure. <laughs> you know, the Parkinson's research community is relatively, just like the world of PT, like even though there's a lot of people, it's still relatively small. Um, and so I've been familiar with Merrill's work for a lot of long time. We've met at conferences in the past. And, you know, uh, we also are on the editorial board together with JNPT. So we've been friends for a while now. And so I've selfishly sort of am interested in how pain might influence sort of movement and exercise behavior in Parkinson's. And I know that Merrill has done a bunch of work related to sort of fear avoidance behavior related to balance problems, et cetera. So I sort of sent him an email and roped him into this and asked him, you know, should we should we think about doing a presentation related to this? And so thankfully he agreed. And so, yeah, not a, not a super funny story, but I will say <laughs> I roped him into it. So thanks, Merrill, for joining me. <laughs> well, I was happy to participate because I've really admired a lot of the work that Ryan has done over the years and, and thought that we should collaborate. We need to do yeah. something together. And so we, uh, we have a lot of mutual interest and I, I appreciate his expertise and uh, really value his, his contribution to the science of Parkinson's disease and in the physical therapy world. So it was a pleasure to collaborate with him. And we are also happy that you collaborated and came together with, with this terrific presentation. So um, at CSM, as we said, you presented and your title was Mind Over Movement, Fear Avoidance Behavior, Impacting Movement and Participation in Parkinson's Disease. So let's first talk about fear of falling, which sounds like it could be helpful because people become a little bit more aware. 
or maladaptive because it can lead, as we said, to these avoidance behaviors. So can you discuss in, in a little more detail some of the negative outcomes of avoidance behavior? Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to take on, on this idea. Um, fear, fear is kind of in the anxiety spectrum. It's when you think of fear, you should be also be thinking of anxiety and and how that manifests in us from a psychological perspective is that is through mostly through avoidance behavior. And it's it's a protective mechanism that we have. And fear is good. And, and I like to think of fear as something that it's protective um, and in and in the right quantities, it's helpful for us. A fear keeps us from from doing crazy things that could put our life in danger. And that's very helpful. And we can, and that's adaptive. And we, and we want to have that. We we want to have some fear to help us navigate life. But like anxiety can be paralyzing, fear in obviously is in that same spectrum. It too much fear, um, too much anxiety can be problematic. And that can lead to uh, activities where uh, or lack of activities where you're avoiding so many things and avoiding engagement in life. And and in in the research that that we've looked at, um, the manifestation of the fear is the avoidance behavior. And that avoidance behavior has some downstream consequences. And first main downstream consequence of avoidance behavior is is deconditioning. If we're thinking about like physical deconditioning, um, you're not going out, you're not leaving the house, you're not going and doing the things that you typically did in the past. So um, maybe you don't go out to restaurants with friends, you don't go to church, you don't go recreate, uh, you don't walk around in your neighborhood. Um, that avoidance behavior can can be paralyzing and can remove you from aspects of life that you found enjoyable. And importantly, it removes you from things that are healthy and good for you, like physical engagement, physical activity. And when that physical activity declines, your balanced body systems um, also decline. And, and obviously, we, we need our motor systems to be working really, really well. And we need our sensory systems to be primed. And if those are not being engaged, they, they start to um, degrade. And that leads to more problems with balance down the road. And so that's why we call it a vicious cycle. But there are other downstream consequences that I think are are, are really important to think about. Um, you're not doing physical activity. That means that you're not engaging bone health. Um, so bones become uh, more osteoporotic or osteopenic. And that, of course, is problematic if you're a faller or you're at high risk for a fall. Um, and But the other thing that we're starting to look at here in, in my lab more it, are things like um, social isolation, loneliness, depression, and those things are also really bad and really sad. Um, and that's a population that has a big place in my heart. You know, I, I really want to target that population, the people that are isolated socially and, and lonely and depressed and don't have a lot of hope. And, and so that's you know, that's the that's the big downstream consequence that 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 I'm focusing on with my research right now. Yeah. So, so many aspects of your life and it sounds like the social component could be so much more impactful than even just the physical that we often focus on as therapists. Yeah, because once you lose hope, you lose social engagement, mm -hmm. um, you lose that verve for life in Parkinson's disease. We know it's progressive. We don't want it to progress really fast, but you you lose hope and the verve for life and and engaging in things, uh, you're just going to have a steeper decline. Yeah. 
I mean, just to jump in there, even this is something I think I heard last week that the Surgeon General of the United States just declared loneliness an epidemic. And, you know, they put out a bulletin about how not only common it is, but how debilitating it can be for people. Um, And, you know, this is really something that we need to pay attention to really in any population that we see, but particularly people with Parkinson's who are primed to have this fear of movement or fear of other things that I'm sure we'll get to that can influence their ability to engage socially. Yeah. I mean, we see that in my clinic, we have a Parkinson's exercise group that meets weekly and how wonderful that is, even more so for the social connection and the support. And you can't get enough of that. I agree. Um, So fear falling, I think we can agree, can be present in both fallers and non-fallers, right? Um, And I think a lot of clinicians are pretty good at picking up who's fearful, but are there objective ways that you measure the avoidance behaviors? Yeah, there are there are actually uh, several scales out there right now. I'm a bit biased. I developed a scale. Right. Um, that was a good segue for me, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's the uh, fear of falling avoidance behavior scale. And he gets, um, he gets paid a lot of money. Questionnaire. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> actually, the scale is available for anyone to use free of use. I don't I, I know a lot of people try to make their scales proprietary, but I think that's crazy. I just want to help the population and and you know this, we're we're working on on actually a modification of it, and um, that we're going to be submitting here really soon. Um, that we think makes it just a little bit better than what it was uh, in the past. But uh, it's a scale that's easy to use. It takes less than five minutes to answer, and you can use it in a clinic to just gauge and and see if your if your patient is avoiding activities due to fear of falling. Okay, so we'll have to look for the modified version. Yeah, the modified version has actually been out there and it's been presented at, at CSM this last year, actually. So, but the, the actual publication isn't out, out yet. Okay. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about some of the factors that lead to the avoidance behavior. Now, I imagine disease progression would be an obvious one, but are there others that you could go into a little more detail on? So w- I think there's lots of different types of fears in older adults, in, in anybody. Um, but in people with Parkinson's disease, there are several different types of fear. And, and Ryan's expertise is the, the, the fear of pain, the fear of movement associated with pain. And, and that's really debilitating. He can speak to that. But there are other fears for people with Parkinson's disease. And, and some of them I'm just becoming aware of um, through, through the research that I've done with, with avoidance behavior. In fact, one of them is uh, fear of stigma. And that one was a surprise to me because our research on avoidance behavior, we, we did the Parkinson's disease uh, questionnaire 39, and we found that avoiders had lower quality of life associated with stigma. And so what we started to notice is that there's a, there's a relationship there. And uh, so what it is, is that people with Parkinson's disease um, try to hide their diagnosis. More than 50% try to hide their diagnosis. Uh, there's a fear of being outed in public or in a gym, and it's a, it's it's a, another thing that I think needs to be investigated. Like people do not want to go to the gym. People with Parkinson's disease do not want to go to the gym for fear that they might look bad or people might notice that they're struggling or might notice their tremor. And so the fear of stigma is, is a new one that's that's interesting. Uh, fear of incontinence, of course, is is one that's been studied a bit in other populations. But, you know, 90 percent of people with Parkinson's disease have a problem with incontinence at some point. 
And we don't typically think to ask people with Parkinson's disease if a fear of incontinence is keeping them away from physical activities that they normally like to do, like exercise and things that are healthy for them. Um, so I think it's something that we need to uh, address more directly. Um, and then the other one that has a has a place in my heart is uh, fear of progression. And this is something that's that's pretty new to me. And I told this in the CSM talk. Uh, that I had a research participant who was going to participate in a group exercise boot camp. And uh, she came there and she she saw the other participants and she looked at me and she said, I can't do this. And so I took her aside and she was a never exerciser. So she really, really needed this. And I took her aside and I said, tell me why. And she goes, I cannot see those others in the group and how advanced they are. It bothers me. It gives me severe anxiety. I can't. And she's the type of person that doesn't go to support groups because she doesn't want to see someone in a wheelchair or someone with a walker and see what they're going to look like in, in 5, 10, 15 years. So this fear of progression is, is a really problematic. And more than 80% of people with Parkinson's disease have reported a fear of progression. And, and about a third of them have a severe restriction of activities due to it. So it is it is something that we uh, in the Parkinson's community need to be more cognizant of. Uh, and, and I think that Ryan's work on fear of pain. I mean, this is something that I had until I met Ryan, I had I it didn't even cross my mind to ask people with Parkinson's disease if they had pain. Um, but now it's something that's in the forefront of my mind because of the research he's done. And interesting enough, I was thinking the exact same thing about the fear of pain because, you know, I'm aware that a lot of people with Parkinson's have musculoskeletal pain, right? They talk yeah. about back pain, um, but it didn't seem to, in my mind, those patients were limited in movement as much as some of my chronic pain patients were. So I was surprised on that. Um, maybe, like you said, I'm, I'm not asking the right questions. So Ryan, if you want to talk a little bit more about that, that would be great. Yeah, I think me being like a super evidence-based person, like I think we still need actual data on that, which I'm working on right now. But I can tell you anecdotally that I've had a number of people in the current study I'm working on, which is focused solely on chronic low back pain in Parkinson's, that it is a significant influencer of their ability to participate in exercise or even just normal daily activities. Um, so I've had a lady tell me she basically had to give up gardening, which was one of her very favorite activities because she couldn't stand the back pain that came from it. That a number of people tell me like they they are really having trouble getting started on a walking program because it limits their ability to walk for a certain duration. So again, data is forthcoming, but I can tell you anecdotally that I have realized that it seems to be at least one thing that we should be asking about as clinicians. And I, I mentioned this during the talk as well, that for five years when I was only seeing patients with Parkinson's in our clinic, probably four and a half of those years, I never thought to ask about pain until I basically had two patients in a row who like their main complaint was low back pain. And then it was sort of like an aha moment, like, wow, I've probably missed a whole lot of people uh, who had pain that I should have been asking about. Um, so I think in addition to the pain, I think one of the things as clinicians, like our focus is always tends to be movement, but we need to recognize that uh, people don't move for reasons that might go beyond movement related factors. So like we think you don't participate in exercise because oh, of course you're fearful of falling or you're fearful of that somebody's going to see how you walk or something like that. But as Meryl mentioned, like there 
I've asked several people, why don't you go to the to out to lunch with your friends anymore? Well, I'm afraid I'm going to have an accident and I don't want to do that. Um, or my back's really going to hurt. I, I can't go to cocktail parties anymore because I have to stand for a long time and I can't do that because of my back. Um, and so we need to not just chalk up lack of physical activity due to movement related problems and sort of probe into that further. Like, why are you not active? Um, because I think we'll be surprised at some of the answers that we get. And then also some of the things that we can act on. Like, again, related to the incontinence thing, I beat myself up like for five years. I could have been referring a bunch of people to pelvic health physical therapists that I never did that. Um, and so uh, thinking about how we might be able to help uh, these other things that we commonly think might fall outside our purview, but really they don't sometimes. Yeah, I agree with the incontinence thing. I, it's a real issue. I've seen that with my patients and even in some of my own family members. And so in addition to, you know, the fear of incontinence, then they stop drinking, right? And they get dehydrated right. and that just back to our vicious like cycle, right? Yeah. Um, did you guys, have you found any connection with cognitive deficits and fear avoidance behaviors? Although maybe that goes on the other end that they have poor judgment and they don't avoid when they should. Yeah, so there have been a number of studies that have looked at this, and I would say that the results are mixed. There are some studies that show a relationship, and there's some studies that show there's not much of a relationship. So I don't know that we can say that there's a cognitive component with with cognitive capacity, uh, but certainly if you're thinking about fears and anxieties being cognitively driven, they certainly have some type of contribution in that in that mm -hmm. realm for sure. I mean, that, that would be really interesting, Meryl. This is a study idea for you to look at where, like in terms of your quadrant system that you have, where it's appropriate avoiders, inappropriate avoiders, et cetera, like what are the impacts of cognitive status and whether where they fall on those things? I guess, because clinically I'm thinking about some people that I have who are very, uh, you know, they have PhD degrees um, and they are so anxious they sort of i've seen some of them fall into what i would consider to be inappropriate avoiders where their ability is just fine but they're so fearful almost because they analyze every situation so deeply that they avoid activities uh, it'd be interesting to think about that further that's actually a really good point um i was thinking i'm actually writing it down <laughs> that's a potential you're welcome in advance <laughs> <laughs> so uh yeah they um also the if you think of the maladaptive category the inappropriate non-avoiders so people who have really bad balance but yet they're not avoiding any activity when they should be we've looked at it a little bit and we see a hint of maybe a a little bit of um you know cavalier attitude or 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 tend to be a little bit more men who fall into this category um and uh and I wouldn't be surprised if there's a if there's a cognitive component there, yeah. because, I mean, logically, uh, if you're a follower, you would want to be careful about your activities. I mean, that's the normal adaptive response. And if you're not having that response, there might be a cognitive component. And actually, in our model, if you read the paper, the framework paper, um, we talk about cognitive screening for that population. So you guys have both kind of segued into where I was going with this, with the categories and the, the four boxes. So I was hoping maybe you could explain that a little bit better and kind of what cutoffs do you use to put someone in an avoider or a non-avoider or someone who, you know, what are you using as your cutoffs for your, for your balance deficits as well? 
Yeah, so the the framework comes out of the paper that I wrote with Mia Nielsen. And um, basically, the idea of it is, is trying to figure out if their avoidance behavior is adaptive or if it's maladaptive. And so the whole, por- the whole point of the quadrant, it's kind of a rough way of kind of determining whether somebody's, you know, may- having appropriate adaptive behaviors. And we feel like people who have poor balance should be avoiding some activity. And people who have good balance should probably not be avoiding any activity. And then when we see it's discongruent, where people have, you know, really bad balance and they're not avoiding anything, um, that's, you know, that's maladaptive. Or when people are, um, are avoiding a lot of um, activity, but have actually good balance, that's also maladaptive. And so putting them in those categories actually helps us to think a little bit about treatment approaches that can be tailored based on whether their adaptation is is appropriate. And, and if it's not, we, we need to look at some reasons why and other things that maybe can mitigate it. But yeah, um, I, I guess I would refer you to that paper to have a little bit more detail about about the quadrant system, um, but it's and it's really not there to be a you know completely prescriptive of it's it's there to guide and to help with clinical reasoning. Um, but for cutoff points, uh, we use a twenty scale points on the fear of falling avoidance behavior questionnaire, and then we propose in our study that you can use any scale for the for the balance performance. Um, and in the in the paper, we we use um, the Berg balance scale, and we use the forty three point five uh, cut score for that. That's based on previous research I've done in, in Parkinson's disease. But it could be any other cut point. And Ryan's has some cut points for 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 the mini best test, and and I think also for the tug. You can use any of those those cut points for that. But I I also want to just implore clinicians to not be so focused on these cutoff scores that are sort of created in the literature. Like, so just because somebody scores a 30, 46 on the Berg does not mean they're not at risk for falls. Like, just as if they score a 44, it's not that the definite that they are going to fall. And so we shouldn't treat those things as absolutes. And so to the point about the quadrant system, like if somebody scores a 44 on the bird you shouldn't just chalk them up to being like totally impaired or something like that um and so making sure that you like use the the cutoff scores are nice guides but you should treat them as absolute time i would i'll just add one thing is uh one thing is that uh, that we didn't touch on if that's all right um is, is that um we often think of fall history uh when we do our are subjective with patients when they come in and we automatically assume that, um, you know, if somebody hasn't fallen recently or in the last month or last year, they're not really a faller. Um, but we know that falls are nonlinear. So as, as somebody's disease progresses or they get older, they, their falls start to increase. And at some point they, they start to decrease their, they start to avoid things to avoid falling Mm -hmm. and their falls start to drop. And so that's why we say this inverted U curve um, in falls. And so just thinking about fall history, I think we give too much weight to fall history. It's possible that somebody is a real faller, but they're avoiding so many things that they're no longer falling. Um, I think we just need to think about the context of of how much physical activity they're doing, uh, how much avoidance they're doing uh, in context with their falls. And so I think even irrespective of like cut points, like thinking about 
as a clinician, you're really interested. Is there a mismatch here? <laughs> like, are you seeing somebody who has who is way too fearful of falling? And then based on whatever capacity measure you take in the clinic, that it doesn't make sense that they would be avoiding activity. That's a ripe opportunity for discussion at that point. Or the opposite side, like their ability as measured by whatever measure you use doesn't match their their avoidance behavior, then we need to have a talk uh, about those things. So again, like you said, you can use cut points from various measures, but really I think what you're interested in is the mismatch between the two, which is going to help you figure out how to intervene. And I, I said this during the presentation as well, like this was so like it made so much sense clinically and it's so cool to actually have it like to me to see the schematic because I'm like, this happens all the time. Mm -hmm. I have people who like, I'm like, you should never move alone and they fall all the time. And then I have people who score a 27 out of 28 on the mini best test who are avoiding everything under the sun because they're so fearful of falling. And then that's where we have to, to figure out how to intervene. Um, and so yeah, really, really great way to think about that because then even so, that opens the opportunity for you to have a conversation with your patient. Like, based on your abilities, it doesn't make logical sense that you would avoid activities. Let's figure out why you're doing that. I mean, you could even look at like steps per day. If they're taking 2,000 steps a day, but they have really good balance, like let's talk about why you're not moving as much. Yeah. And so why don't we talk a little more about intervention, unless, Merrill, you have something else. Yeah, I wanted to add, add something in, uh, to, what, to what Ryan had said. And, and really, I think a lot of clinicians do this intuitively. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they think, oh, this person should be doing better, you know, based on their balance performance and, and how active they are. And so we, we kind of do this intuitively in, in some cases, but... I think that when you lay it out and you you see the quadrants and and it just helps you to reason a little bit better and just gives you a framework for understanding, okay, this is a treatment approach that fit this population a little bit better. And so, um, but I think many, you know, expert clinicians have probably already, you know, kind of come to this understanding. But if you're not measuring avoidance behavior, you don't know what type of avoidance behavior they have. So you don't know whether they're adaptive or maladaptive. And so... Right. I think a lot of people now, you know, we're focusing more on participation, you know, outside of the clinic, right? That's our goal. And we're using things like Ryan mentioned, like steps per day, which I think is great. But, um, you know, I'm sure there's many more questions that could be asked and things that people are avoiding. Yeah, actually, steps per day is really interesting because steps per day is actually associated with avoidance behavior. Um, Avoiders have about 2000 fewer steps per day than non-avoiders. Um, in a, in a study that we published. And so, yeah, steps is, I mean, that's engagement. Um, but what's even more interesting and something that we're hoping to look at here down the road is, you know, are they steps in your home or are they steps outside your home? Right. And so looking out, like, how are you engaging in the community? Um, I mean, I would love it if they had more steps outside their home than in their home, because that means they're actually out and about. So, so moving on now, thinking about the quadrant system and like interventions, like how do we how do we work with these patients to get them in a better place? And I know that when you think about you know pain science with chronic pain, or even in vestibular arena with like the three P D or concussion, you know we slowly expose them to things. Um, is that kind of the same thing that you're doing here, or in another 
way. Let's talk about the group who's maladaptive, who has good balance, but is avoiding. Yeah. So that, that, that category of maladaptive behavior, um, we call uh, inappropriate avoiders. So these people are avoiding inappropriately. It's maladaptive. And so we're, we're starting to think, what are some things that can help mitigate that? And one of the things that's been shown um, to help with anxieties is cognitive behavioral therapy. And we get this from our psychology colleagues. Um, and cognitive behavioral therapy across many different types of fears and anxieties has been shown to be effective. Um, and this is like the main tool in, in psychologists' um, repertoire of, of, of therapies. And it is starting to come into the physical therapy world and occupational therapy world uh, where we do things like graded exposure. So graded exposure is actually a, a CBT technique. But you want to do that in a safe environment and help build confidence um, in a safe environment. But part of CBT is is getting you to kind of remove thoughts and uh, feelings and things that you have that are that are considered not good or healthy for you. And there's a subtype of of CBT called ACT therapy. So this is acceptance and commitment therapy, which is where we're starting to move our research toward and. ACT therapy, I think, fits better for people with Parkinson's disease because Parkinson's disease is progressive. So we know removing thoughts about disease progression, about um, about falling and things like that, they're going to continue to have those thoughts through the rest of their life, probably, because they're it's a progressive disorder. So it's more, I think, a healthier approach to dealing with it. It has a lot of the same components of CBT. It is a CBT therapy. It's more of acceptance of of the thoughts and placing value on your life um, in the context that you're currently in and, you know, committing to live a more valued life based on a, a, a changing dynamic that you have with your condition. And so I think that ACT therapy is the is the approach that we're moving to um, here in my lab. Can you give me more specifics or Ryan, maybe you can about how you would use the ACT? Yeah. I'll just, um, in terms of CBT, and I think one of the things that's important there, and Meryl, again, I'm not, I don't claim to be an expert. I have a little bit of training in it, but it's not necessarily removing thoughts. It's actually sort of like thinking about your thinking, (laughs) more or less, like being able to recognize that you are having thoughts that then can influence your behavior. For example, like, when I drive home from work every day, like I'm thinking like, oh, I don't have time to go to the gym because I have to help cook dinner and I have to help my wife with the kids and et cetera. And what my CBT would sort of teach you to do is first recognize that you're even thinking that, right? And then also teach you to sort of shift those what would be considered unhelpful thoughts into helpful thoughts saying like, well, even though you don't have time to go, you know, even though you, you got to help cook dinner, et cetera, you do have 30 minutes at nine o'clock after the kids go to bed to go out for a walk or do something like that. Right. So it's recognizing that you may have these and likely have these thoughts that would be considered unhelpful for you achieving whatever goal or behavior that you want to have. And so in terms of like how this might be applied here is like, well, you are having these thoughts that you're so making you so fearful of falling when you think about going to the grocery store or something like that. Well, let's first recognize like 
okay, that's okay that you have those thoughts. That's a valid thought. Let's figure out how can we make that helpful. Oh, maybe you can walk with a cart when you go to the grocery store, or can your spouse go with you or something like that, right? So it's not, I guess, removing those thoughts. It's it's actually sort of validating that you have them, but figuring out how to navigate those rather than just letting those unhelpful thoughts win um, all the time. That, that's right. It, it's yeah. it's it's mindfulness, basically. Right. It basically combines mindfulness with the practice of self-acceptance. Act, acceptance and commitment therapy is more about not letting these thoughts rule you and mm-hmm. and then committing to live a valued life based on on what you have and what your drivers are. Um, and and like Ryan says, it's it's like kind of like finding solutions for things that you want to continue to do and to live a, a committed, valued life. Um, it's, it's finding solutions, accepting that there are some circumstances outside your personal control. Um, and so it's just a frame of reference of, of how you think about things. But it does include graded exposure. So there is definitely some things where you're going to be working on um, similar CBT type of, mm-hmm. of, of activities. And I mean, I don't want to get too far into acceptance and commitment therapy because it theoretically makes a lot of sense but there's not evidence for it yet. Um, and so the, the other thing that I do want to point out is that there are some evidence-based balance treatment approaches. A matter of balance has a CBT component to it, and it's been shown to be uh, effective in Parkinson's disease and older adults. And so I, I think that this is, a, this is a type of therapeutic approach that has a lot of the elements that we would like to see in therapy going forward. I'm actually a matter of balance leader. And uh, we revamped the program for people with Parkinson's and used it a lot. I know it's an in-home thing, but we were using it virtually as a group, especially oh. during COVID, you know. I'm f- fantastic. I'm, I'm curious to know what you think about the, you did it in a telehealth format. Yeah, yeah. And did it, did you find it to be effective? And could you do a lot of the things that you need to in that type of an approach? You know, it's challenging because you're working with older people and we always had another leader on to help with technology issues because when we were doing certain of the simple exercises, we wanted to see the participants. So we spent a bit of time adjusting cameras and, and doing things like that, but it developed a whole camaraderie and support system and people felt better about, you know, having some solutions and identifying where they could make changes, somewhat empowering. So yeah, it was good. Um, we had talked earlier about like with the fear of incontinence and maybe we could be referring to like, you know, pelvic health specialists. Are you recommending any other referrals like for psychologists or? Yeah, I think that's huge. Um, I do, you know, in fact, I just had a participant today who I recommended that they see a psychologist because their anxiety level was very, very high. Um, and that seemed to be influencing their physical activity level. Um, so yeah, I think particularly we make this disclaimer that unless you yourself have undergone sort of the extensive training that's needed to be able to deliver CBT, one, you need to make sure it still fits probably within your scope of practice. But then two, uh, you know, we're not the that's not our expertise that we can sort of deliver elements of that. But if you feel like that sort of approach is needed, that will help the patient be most successful, then certainly a, a referring to somebody who can deliver that uh, would be certainly appropriate. 
Um, we in our institution have a counselor or a psychologist who's solely dedicated to the anesthesiology department, which is partly pain management. And so I can send people with Parkinson's who have chronic pain. If that's a thing that I think is necessary, I can refer them to that person. So there's a lot of people that I think we should think about uh, referring to beyond just what we can do. And it's interesting, in my clinic, we have a pelvic floor specialist, and we refer a lot of our patients with MS to her. And I hadn't even thought about Parkinson's, so. Yeah, and there is there is a little bit of literature. It's not much, but there, you know, the, even just the basic sort of pelvic floor muscle strengthening can be effective for people with PD. Um, and so you can imagine that even more sort of tailored therapy could have even more profound impact. So yeah, that's another area we need to study more, but I wouldn't wait to refer until we have the evidence. I would be referring now. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The other point I want to make on this is that we might be the ones that recognize when their fear is starting to become generalized. Um, their fear might, I mean, and we know that anxieties are high in Parkinson's disease. I mean, most studies show it's over 50% and some up to 70%. Um, that is a very, very high number of people with anxiety. And when that becomes generalized, it is paralyzing. And, and that in and of itself is, is, a, is a major problem. And so we should be thinking more holistically about our patients and thinking more of a team approach, including other disciplines in. Um, because, I mean, it's about the patient first and foremost. To Merrill's point, if you don't feel equipped to deal with shoulder pain, don't try. Just refer to your friend who's in your clinic or somebody down the street who does know how to deal with shoulder pain. Or even better, work together to help that person understand the unique aspects of Parkinson's that might contribute to shoulder pain. Because if we just try to work in isolation, like if I tried to treat somebody's shoulder pain right now, I already know I would be very ineffective, probably. Just like somebody, an orthopedic clinician down the street trying to treat somebody with Parkinson's gait problems might also be ineffective. And so uh, really trying to work together is going to be crucial. Good point. And also I was thinking is, have you used this for other neurodiagnoses or is there literature out there? I mean, it seems like it would play easily in, you know, like MS or stroke. It was one of the points that I wanted to make. And, and I don't think that Ryan and I explained it well enough at, at the CSM. You know, this applies to a lot of other people. There's a lot of different populations that that fit into some of these categories. Now, some of the stuff that we're talking about specifically, like pain and incontinence and fear of progression and the stigma issue might be PD specific, um, but the, certainly the principles hold true across other populations for sure. I mean, really, I encourage all the listeners out there that like just think about pay attention to your thoughts today and how influential they can be over how you act. I mean, we all have thoughts. And so <laughs> all of these things can apply, like you said, Meryl, to basically anyone more or less. And I think it's the most important part is recognizing that you have these thoughts that might fall into particular patterns that then influence your movement or activity. Um, and so, yeah. And then from there, you might have diagnosis or condition specific elements that really should be considered like for example like fear of progression is probably unique to parkinson's and maybe ms as well and other progressive conditions but may not be relevant to somebody with stroke right um but by and large like the fear of something 
might be influencing somebody's movement, uh, which is really critical to tease apart. The one other caveat I'll throw in there, just because I, I thought of it this morning when I was working with a, a participant, actually, is that, and this is this hits a little bit on what we've said, really teasing apart, like, why is somebody not moving? Like, it can be fear of X, Y, Z. The other thing that's really common in Parkinson's is apathy. Uh, and it turned out that this was another major driver why the person wasn't moving. So don't always either chalk it up to fear of something. It could just be that they just really don't see the value in it. They don't want to do it. Uh, and so trying to sort of figure that out will help you figure out how to treat them. Apathy is also really tough to, to work with. That's a really good point, Ryan. And, and if you go back to the paper that Terry Ellis wrote in 2013 on, um, on barriers to exercise, uh, one of the top things was fear of falling. But one of the other things was low expectations of exercise being beneficial for them. And I think that falls in the apathy spectrum. Yeah. And so, yeah, we have uh, we have to figure out what these barriers are and and uh, and try and mitigate them as much as possible and and address them head on. And and that's one of the things that I, I've you know, it's interesting. You know, I look back at myself 25 years ago as a therapist and, and all the things that I must have missed and all those patients that I saw. Um, and, and now as a more seasoned person, I feel like, gosh, I'm just starting to learn um, uh, things that are, I think, really, really important. Whereas I was, I think as a new grad, I was more reductive onto like musculoskeletal things and, and really didn't think about the psychology of things. And, and as I'm getting more and more uh, seasoned, I, I start thinking more about the psychology of things. And I think we need to ask, we need to, we need to ask our patients, if we're not asking them about these things, these fears, um, we won't know about them. We won't know if that, that's a barrier for them. Yep. Right. So that's a good take home point. I think from about this, everything we've been talking about, right. You need to talk to your patients and get to know them. So I don't know if you've, if you've heard any of our past podcasts, but we do a thing where we ask you to tell us something fun you do besides physical therapy activities. So Meryl, we'll start with you. Yeah. So uh, I have a family, I have four kids. And so I would say that most of my life is revolved around kids activities, but I'm almost an empty nester now. I've got a senior in high school. So, you know, we're doing the last bit of track and field this last year. Um, and so, yeah, kids activities have been mostly it, but I'm an, I'm an outdoors person. So I love traveling. I love food. I love sports. Yeah. I'm a, I'm an outdoors type of guy and yeah. Okay. Ryan. Um, yeah, I, you know, like Meryl said, we have, I have three kids and three youngsters, nine, six, and two. So not a whole lot of free time, but I will say one of the things I'm really enjoying now is being involved with my daughters. So I help coach her softball team. She's nine. I've just realized like I, I, I played college baseball and I am more competitive now than I ever used to be. And it's, it's borderline <laughs> unhealthy. Um, but I've spent a lot of time not only enjoying them, but also trying to make sure that I'm not that guy uh, when it comes to sporting events. So, yeah, I really enjoy that. So big athlete, you know, I've always been an athlete, enjoy sports, and I'm having a tough time with the Blues not being in the Stanley Cup playoffs right now, but I'll get over it. So thank you for joining us, and special thanks to our guests today, Ryan Duncan and Merrill Landers.
Yeah. Anytime. I appreciate the work you guys do. This is awesome. Yeah, we appreciate being a part of this. This was uh, thank you for the invitation. 4D is produced by the ANPT Degenerative Disease Special Interest Group. Our podcast team includes Parm Padgett, Sarah Zoller, Katie McGraw, Ken Vinaco, Jeffrey Schmidt, and Carly Havar. And I'm Chris Burke. Please subscribe to our newsletter on the ANPT website, neuropt.org, or check us out on Facebook. And please share this episode with a friend and or colleague. Special thanks to Jimmy McKay of the PT Pinecast for providing music. And thanks for listening. We also use bloopers, so just heads up. <laughs> you also, Chris, have a natural like NPR voice, so you should be like... You do. <laughs> 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 you do. <laughs> More, and you can feel free to chop this out. Totally fine. Adaptivity. I don't know that I'm making that word up. Whether <laughs> They're adaptation. <laughs> That's the right word. <laughs> And so full disclaimer, I didn't come to your presentation. I was, I went to lunch with Sarah and Parm and we, they were walking to it. And I said, well, you guys go to that one. Well, Meryl, you have a nice, nice background. The nicest so far of the group. <laughs> it's actually the roof of a building for the floor below me. And so it's kind of a dump. So I see air conditioning units. You can see a little part of an air conditioning unit. And so it's, yeah, it's. It's not the greatest. There are some trees in the background, but they're a little yeah. ways off. And it's okay to say we we've covered it all. <laughs>